Green Rush Nation. Producer Shay Gunther here with a quick programming note about today's show. We're running an episode of Marijuana Today featuring two friends of the Green Rush, Heather Sullivan and Ben Larson, who dive into the recent accidental legalization of edibles in Minnesota, as well as looking at how things are going in legal cannabis investing and venture capital. Enjoy! Welcome to episode 411 of Marijuana Today. I'm this week's host, a fairly subdued Heather Sullivan. I am an advocate, a chronic cannabis consumer, and I work in the legal and compliance side of the industry for Cureleaf, one of the large multi-state operators in the space. However, the opinions I share on this podcast do not reflect Cureleaf's management or corporate perspectives. These opinions are mine and mine alone. Now, listeners, we haven't been on for a while. We haven't had a new show for a little while. Uh, So thanks for bearing with us while we all took a little bit of a much needed break. Um, I am back today. I am thrilled with today's guest. I'm happy to have him. Uh, But I do wanna thank you guys for coming back and listening. We hope to have a pretty good show for you today. Uh, It means a lot to us that you spend uh, your podcasting time with us here at Marijuana Today. So last couple of weeks in cannabis news, you know, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about Brittany Grenier, um, you know, with the hope of leniency in her sentencing and an opportunity for negotiating a prisoner swap with the United States, uh, wrongfully detained WNBA player Brittany Grenier pled guilty in a Russian court this week to drug possession and smuggling charges. Telling the judge that she inadvertently brought the vape cartridges in her luggage while she was packing up in a hurry. Me personally, I usually forget to pack my vape cartridges when I'm packing in a hurry. But I totally get how that can happen. Um, you know, the this issue has, it's been a challenging one for me because I am not sure how much we should be highlighting this issue. You know, you hear different things um, that actually downplaying it might actually benefit her um, because then the uh, Russians who are we are going to be negotiating against um, have less of a less of a come to us from with less of a position of strength. Um, one thing that I've been thrilled about seeing, though, I, I don't necessarily believe in that philosophy. Um, But of course, I've never had a family member uh, wrongfully detained in a foreign country for having a couple of vape cartridges. So I'm not one to speak on what the appropriate actions are. Um, I will say that I have been very impressed with how the WNBA itself has been supporting Brittany and her family during this, what has now been almost 140 days of... um, of incarceration in a Russian prison, which I can't imagine uh, is a is a pleasant, healthy, or frankly safe environment for um, an admitted 
LGBTQ American basketball, uh, American black basketball player at that. Um, so we're not going to dig too deep into this one because I honestly just feel that um, I don't want to give it. You know, we want to keep we want to keep folks in the industry informed about what's going on there. But at the same time, I also feel it's very important to let um, expert expert negotiators go in and actually um, deal with getting her released and back on American soil. Uh, in the House of Representatives, as usual, we are working at a snail's pace. Um, members of the House of Representatives continue to attempt to add a plethora of cannabis and other drug policy reform amendments to the National Defense Authorization Act. NDAA amendments are being filed for House Rules Committee consideration, which could happen as early as this week. I think one thing that we know in cannabis policy is that getting something through the House or getting something added to a bill in the House is the easy part. But it really comes down to the Senate side and when these two uh, factions come together and, and try to build a bipartisan bill. You know, the NDAA is essential or is considered essential by our lawmakers. So I don't have a lot of faith personally in what uh, in what might happen in the coming days, um, but you never know. And then in state news, we've got California eradicating its cultivation tax, also opening up some new hemp regulations in the state. We've got Minnesota legalizing edibles for adults. And then advocates in North Dakota, Arkansas, and Nebraska turned in signatures to get cannabis initiatives on the November ballots. So as I said earlier, it's been a hot minute since we've been together, listeners. So I had to bring in one of our heavy hitters. Um, today, we've got Ben Larson, fellow host of the podcast. Uh, ben is also the CEO of Vertosa, an infused product maker, partner, a partner to infuse use product makers, specializing in creating the most effective and reliable active ingredients for infused products. One thing I know about Ben is that he does what he does his business in a way that should serve as a model for most folks in our industry. Uh, ben prioritizes social equity, Ben and Vertosa prioritize social equity and opportunity. He goes all in when he cares about an issue, and he truly lives by his company's mission to break stigma around cannabis. Ben, it's been a minute. It's good to see you. It's great to talk to you. How are you? Thanks, Heather. It has been a minute, and I, I, I too, am feeling a little subdued. Maybe it was our, maybe it was our summer break. Maybe it was the fact that I've been battling COVID for the last couple of weeks, but. Uh, whatever it is, it's it's good to be here with you and and hopefully breathe a little bit of life back into to my uh, Sunday morning here. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that you've been able to uh, consume some in, some CBD infused beverage products while you have been feeling unwell. As I understand that, we know that that can't hurt when it comes to <laughs> battling COVID, and some <laughs> say it actually is quite helpful. 
Yeah, I was, uh, I, I definitely experimented a little bit, maybe not in the first like four days, but uh, this past week as I was kind of getting back to normal. Um, I did find myself going to the plant a little bit. Um, and I actually had some beautiful little uh, uh, garden society pre-rolls uh, that, that Aaron Gore had handed me prior to well, a couple of days before I'd gotten sick. Um, so I, I definitely enjoyed those. It was a really nice experience. Uh, good job, Garden Society. <laughs> Woo, Garden Society. And it's I'm glad to hear that um, your sense of smell and taste were not impacted. So you really got to enjoy those pre-rolls. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I actually wanted to let our listeners know that I was... Um, I can't even remember how it came up, but Ben is going to be speaking at the Cannabis Drink Expo in oh. San Francisco at the end of this month. And he's going to be talking about innovation in the infused <laughs> space. So for anyone yes, who's I, interested. I, 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 I hear Ben is going to be doing that. It reminds me. Uh, don't, 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 don't tell Sid Patel, uh, but I, I still have to put my talk together <laughs> oh, no you're ready to go there's so much going on in the infuse in the infusion space that you know you're talking points right themselves right you're living in this every single day so he's on the forefront of science he's on the forefront of business um and he's a great person for me to have on the podcast today as we get um started looking into a little bit of what's going on in the industry um, for segment one, um, Ben actually brought to me a really interesting article, Crunchbase, which I know nothing about. So I, Ben, you are aware, I know very little about venture capital, uh, startup funding. But one thing I do know is that when I have questions about that topic, I come to you because you are personally an expert. I know you've also mentored and helped a number of startup companies in and out of the space. Um, get themselves funding. So I'm going to be relying pretty heavily on, on you this one. So first of all, set me, so what is Crunchbase? And is this yes. something that you actually, I assumed it's something you use regularly. Uh, yeah, Crunch, Crunchbase is a, well, one, it's a, it's a really helpful tool. Um, and so if you're in the world of venture capital or you're curious about who's getting funding, it kind of acts as a ledger for a lot of activity that's going on in the space. It doesn't capture everything. There's a lot of like, you know, um, angel fundings that happen that kind of uh, miss the crunch base, but their, their crawlers are pretty good. Um, and so, you know, if you're interested in, you know, can and, and the, the, the number of rounds of funding that they've done or who's invested in them, uh, crunch base is going to be able to, to tell you that. Um, or at least a good portion of it. And so they can tell you how much company has raised over time, how many rounds they've had, and the, and the key investors in the space. So that, that's kind of it as a tool. Um, and of course, as any good modern um, tech company, uh, they, they produce content, um, especially around uh, fundraising. And so this particular article that I sent you was kind of just a recent update, and it was very cannabis-focused, which is in of itself is, you know, kind of news to me. It's, it's always great to see someone like Crunchbase, which is very Silicon Valley focused, um, to do a, a, a focus piece on cannabis. Unfortunately, it was a piece that was saying that, you know, our, our fundraising levels for this year, 2022, are just barely pacing above 2017 levels, which was like dramatically lower um, than 2018 through 2021. So um, 
definitely a sobering piece. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone in the space, especially people that have been fundraising this year. I think one of the things that I, you know, when I saw these numbers and in effect, you know, what Crunchbase reported here was that, you know, year year to date, there's been about $294 million in venture funding, which is less than a third that was raised uh, in the first half of 2021. So go back one year, you know, 2021 was a banner year. Uh, one thing I did learn from my research with Crunchbase is that 2021 was a banner year when it came to venture capital funding in general. Mm -hmm. um, I guess one of the things that really surprised me was thinking about, so, you know, thinking about particularly in the Northeast, we've got New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, and Rhode Island, all coming online end of this year, beginning of next year. And I guess I, I don't guess, I would have hoped that venture funding actually would have gone up. This is the time where we where we need to see that funding in order for us to have these companies operational by the time the markets open in these huge, you know, these huge markets open, you know, New York is going mm -hmm. to be the second largest market, if not the first yeah. compared to, Cal you know, it, it, it won't start off as the largest market, but it will <laughs> certainly rival California very quickly. Yeah. So, well, so, so you bring up some interesting points, right? Um, I, there, there is still money flowing and, and where is it flowing? Um, probably towards companies that are not so focused on the, the more entrenched uh, markets. So like, you know, if you're a California based company that's focused on California, things are probably going to be a little bit harder for you because uh, well, we'll, we'll talk about it in a later segment, <laughs> but it's, it's, it hasn't been all roses and sunshine in, in the, in the golden state. Um, but as we look towards, uh, regions like New York, uh, there is a, a fair amount of excitement there. And, and I do hear about companies pulling together capital, pulling together, um, you know, just a, a good deal of momentum, you know, counterbalancing that I think are the lessons that we've learned from states like California. It's just like, yes, New York is going to be big, um, but at what pace and how painful is that first year, second year, um, and are these companies, if they do get capital, are they going to be able to withstand that, that learning period? Um, and so I think that's something that people need to go in, uh, eyes wide open with. Um, luckily, I mean, it, it kind of, it kind of fits, uh, the general consensus around, you know, how to operate through this period. If you are indeed seeking venture capital or, um, have historically raised venture capital and, and need to survive, right. And that's just good business fundamentals. Like you need to have a business that isn't built on a ton of assumptions and a bunch of hopes and dreams and rapid like customer adoption. Um, you're going to be able to need to show that you have something special that you can grow sustainably, that you can stretch the dollar, make it last. Um, and that's whether you're a brand launching in New York or a business that has been running for a number of years like ours, um, you know, uh, it's just um, it's just one of those periods of time where there's a lot of uncertainty, and uncertainty breeds, um, you know, the, a constricted capital pipeline, so to speak. Yeah, and I want to remind listeners that it's not just the cannabis industry feeling the pain when it comes to securing venture capital. That's right. Yeah. Um, globally, VC funding deal counts are down by about almost twenty five percent. 
um, from the first quarter to the second quarter of this year. Um, so they're investors, in, and I also learned that investors are not just writing fewer checks, but they're also writing smaller checks. And I think mm -hmm. this is a situation where your management team and their experience is actually, you know, if you have an experienced management team, whether it's in cannabis or in other sectors, I think that's going to go a, a lot further now as venture capitalists are going to be less willing to take risks on teams that have not, show, you know, have not weathered any storms yet. Um, so I, I do anticipate that that might happen. Um, yeah. And I also, well, you know, also in, a, in addition to that, the, the, the uh, valuations of the of those investments are are coming down. So they're, you know, a lot of the VCs are are viewing this as a as a big correction period, right? So um, whatever your expectations were for your for your valuation, uh, if they were set at the beginning of the year, uh, they will need to to be adjusted down. On you know, un unfortunately, fortunately, uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, again inside and out of cannabis. I think there was just um, a lot of overvaluing. And I think this is just the beginning. I, you know, I, I don't want to turn this into a, a large economics or political podcast, but there's just a lot of adjustments that are going to be happening when it comes to anything with a dollar sign involved um, over the course of the next, you know, call it 12 to 18 months. Well, and I definitely think that overall economic activity is important for us to take into consideration in our space. You know, we do not know how the cannabis industry will weather something that looks like a recession, whether or not we're actually in one is still up mm -hmm. for debate or heading towards one is still up for debate. But we just don't know what cannabis consumer or how cannabis consumers are going to react in in a you know high inflation, high inflation, you know, jobs are, you know, we just got the jobs report this this week. Jobs, mm -hmm. job gains are still good. Um, inflation is still significant. We, you know, I, what I'm hearing, we do expect the Fed to, to, you know, raise interest rates again, you know, and, and in addition to like venture funding drying up, you know, publicly traded cannabis companies are struggling right now too. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was looking at new cannabis ventures, global cannabis stock index, um, which closed in June at its worst level ever. Um, since it's been around. So it's actually dropped more than 55% in 2022. And of course, Ben, I'm on the publicly traded side. And mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it is something that we worry about constantly now. Um, and we find it's very challenging to move the needle in any significant way, whether it's based, you know, whether it's results, it feels as though the perception of the economy and where it's going is having a lot more impact on on the direction we're going in right now than actual mm -hmm. results are. Now we've got second quarter earnings coming out for a lot of companies uh, soon. So I think we'll have a much better sense of where the cannabis industry stands. Um, but I am curious to hear your opinion on, you know, do you think there are different sectors in this space? Like cultivators versus retailers um, or um, ancillary companies mm -hmm. versus plant touching companies. Like who do you think is better positioned to weather this storm, whether it is publicly traded companies uh, or 
folks looking for venture capital or small operators that are literally paying for their, uh, you know, their business expenses through their credit cards? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. One probably fraught with, is with, with minds that will probably piss someone off, but, um, <laughs> but no, I mean, look, um, I, I think we're in an interesting period of time where it's just giving people a, a lot of opportunity, to just like pause and evaluate. Um, I think you're right. I, I think that the public markets have overcorrected and, and that there's actually some good pricing out there right now. If you're interested in picking up some, some public stocks, um, are we at the bottom? But I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah, if, you, I mean, if we could, I, if we could guesstimate that, yeah. you know, we'd be billionaires. I mean, I, <laughs> we might be pretty close and in the grand scheme of things, damn near the bottom. Um, I, I do think that when sentiment, uh, positive sentiment comes back and that, you know, people start to understand what a, a more realistic trajectory of the industry is, then they'll be willing to kind of place their bets and, and companies like, like yours and, and, and others, uh, multi-state operators that have, you know, good business fundamentals and are, are posting profits. Like I think they, they will start to climb again. And, um, you know, I think the the trajectory of the market is kind of playing into those hands, right? Like it's it's not like we're getting broad sweeping, you know, help from the from the feds. It's um, you know, that if we were getting that, that would be playing strongly into independent brands and and maybe single state operators that we're hoping to be able to suddenly ship from uh, from one state to the next. Like that's just not happening, and it's not going to happen anytime soon. And so. Um, you know, the multi-state operators that, that have created access, um, it, to a larger addressable market, I think is, 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 um, probably the biggest growth opportunity there. And I think they'll be looking to pick up brands along the way to kind of get themselves closer to the customer. And so working away from the MSOs versus single state operators, um, you know, I, I think those who are closer to the customer, um, always generally win, right? That's like why brands have such high multiples is because they they can control the 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 hearts and minds of, of the consumer. Um, you know, in this space, because of like access and licensing and all that, retailers are oftentimes perceived as as the brands, um, you know, from a um, you know, from a psychological perspective. And so um, branded retail, I think, is a is a really a really big opportunity um, to be the point of access and to be the brand that that the that the consumers under, understand and know. Um, but you know, um, there will always be a, a big opportunity for supportive services and the ancillary companies and all that. So um, I feel like we've been talking about that for the last ten years. So I'll just leave it there. Um, but. You know, I do worry about the the growers. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, they will. It's it's a commodities business. It'll always feel the pressure. Any help that you do get from the government will quickly be absorbed and be. It's you know, we, we can talk about this a little bit more in a, in a later segment, but um, you know, the entire industry knows about like you know the price demands and like how much things cost and where they're getting, you know, tax benefits, so to speak. Um, and so that quickly gets absorbed by the system as a whole. Um, and so, yeah, I think 
the the growers and the extractors, um, unfortunately, are always always going to feel the pinch, and that's going to always have this drive towards um, heavier commoditization. So, Ben, I'm curious in your experience. So, in your experience as a um, in working with beverage brands, are mm-hmm. most of the brands that you work with are they um, purchasing their the cannabis or the well the THC or the CBD oils uh, are they purchasing those on the wholesale market or do you also work with folks that might be vertically integrated like do you have a, a balance there or is it mostly people who are who are subject it's, to the the ebbs and flows of the of the commodities market yeah so I mean our our customer base is like primarily independent brands. Um, and those brands often rely on us to do the procurement. So, you know, one, one of the benefits of working with us is that, you know, we do go out and we kind of map the, the industry. We know who does, you know, the high quality work and we purchase a lot of oil. Um, you know, I think last, last few months has maybe been like a hundred kilos of, of oil a month, um, going into infused products. Right. Um, and so if, if we are working with a vertically integrated operator, oftentimes it's a different type of relationship where we're acting as a toll processor. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, those have led to nice, you know, just um, arrangements where we'll use their material for their products, but we'll also use their material for, for other people's products. And it creates kind of a nice workflow from an operational perspective. So the, the toughest thing about our business is that, you know, we're, we're taking something that we try to keep as custom as possible. Um, but, you know, we have to scale and we have to be efficient if we're going to keep our head above water. So um, that's kind of the, the the thing that we're always balancing. Like, how do we bring like a, a live resin out of Humboldt, California and put it into a beautiful product? How do we do that and make that customer's product, you know, really special, but keep our business afloat and keep it like, make it make sense to, to support all the employees that we have. Yeah. It seems like an overwhelming challenge at times. I can't imagine um, just the, just the market forces that you're up against. Um, yeah. It, right. It's, it's yeah. interesting. And we, you know, we work, well, at this point we work probably across like 10 markets or so. Um, and so really understanding uh, the legality of every market that, even just the pricing, it's so interesting to go from California where, you know, you can get uh, distillate for, you know, really cheap, like $2,000 a kilo. And quality um, distillate at that. Very quality, yes. nice quality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Better quality yeah. than you can get in some of the other markets. <laughs> Not to the same quality, no offense to our Massachusetts partners, but like, um, it's, it's, it's definitely, um, it makes it really tricky. Like I can only imagine what it's like to run a large MSO where you have this, you know, on steroids where you're worrying about every type of license and every type of market and how to like manage all those supply chains. It's, uh, it's challenging. And, and this inherently is, is the problem and why we're seeing this huge price correction in cannabis is because there's just not a lot of economies to scale right now. And we're not seeing a lot of support uh, from, you know, again, the feds, uh, to kind of create a more unified approach and, uh, you know, a, a hat tip to, to organizations like attach, um, like I know Michael Bronstein and the team have been working really hard to get sensible, 
uh, at least like structure and categorization, like from one state to the next, especially in these new states um, that are coming on, like, like, like New Jersey and New York. Um, it's just like, if we could at least get the same rules, then we can maybe be in two states and have the same philosophy in, in two neighboring states, which would be a blessing, right? I mean, what a delight it would be just to be able to produce products with the same labels as another yes. state. You know, like something yeah. as simple as that, you know, it would just be really, um, I mean, economies, is, you know, it's something that I, you know, struggle with a lot as being part of a multi-state operator. It, mm-hmm. And it, I find it very fascinating um, when working with folks that come from traditional industry into this space, you know, every everyone's first initial thought is, oh, we'll just, you know, we'll streamline everything and go, you know, put yeah. a, a national focus on everything. And as you start trying to do that, you start to really realize there's very few areas in this industry that you can actually do that in because the state regulatory structures are so different. Um, even things as, as one would think as simple or even things that other industries do really, really well, like data collection, you know, like yeah. running all your stores on, you know, running all your stores on the same software um, that things like that can be challenging. Never mind the things that are actually like compliance related that, right. that you have yeah. to do, um, you know, the nice to do is wouldn't it be great to have a national marketing plan where you could say, okay, this is how we're going to market across yeah. the country. It, it yeah. It's impossible. Um, it's it, Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's interesting, but you know, the, um, to take it back to the original, like focal point of the topic of, yes. of like venture capital, right. It's just, um, with constraints come opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so what we know now pretty, pretty thoroughly are the constraints. Like we've had enough time to really understand like the, the allure of like mass legalization, all that kind of stuff. It's like, I mean, we'll, again, we'll talk about this in the next segment, probably. But it's like it's 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 crazy out there, and it's 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 not getting necessarily easier. And so these these constraints that we've come to learn uh, can probably now at, at this point be be considered a constant, um, or at least should be from a modeling perspective. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're building a business right now and you're hoping to get venture capital, like don't bake any major assumptions into your into your plan like find out how you're going to run a successful or at least sustainable business in in today's market with today's constraints and if you can do that and we do happen to get some help from the feds at a certain point in time it's just going to be an added benefit and so you know that's what we've done in this company and that's why we've continued to persist the way we have is like you know we just assume that this is that this is the the market that we're going to have to operate in um of course we reserve ourselves, you know, the opportunity to benefit from, from any help, you know, from whether it's cross state commerce or decriminalization or, or what have you. But um, yeah, I mean, like right now it's like, what, what do people need help with? People need help with getting their brands into other States. And so that's why we're focusing on what we're focusing on. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I, we work with a lot of brands, a lot of brands know I have, opinions or access you know and uh when it comes to venture capital and it's really it's really sobering right now when you know i have you know a hundred brands that all probably 
would take some venture capital. And it's, um, it's kind of the same story. It's just like, you have to be really special. You have to show why you're going to succeed mm-hmm. over all these other brands. And you're going to have to have a unique insight and kind of some realism uh, to your projections. And, and realism is probably the most important thing right now when you're, when you're putting those numbers together. I will also say one of the things that I learned in researching is that venture capital firms continue to collect large amounts of capital. They're just not, they're just not, it's, they're just not giving it out right now. Um, so I think also, you know, take into consideration that there will be a time when venture capital firms say, okay, we need to start actually putting some of this money out in the market and, and, generating rep, you know, generating returns back to us. Yeah. So if you can fi- figure out a way to, you know, for right now to hold, hold steady, hold your market share, um, make sure that you have a supply chain that is as stable as possible. Um, make sure mm-hmm. that you're focusing on compliance um, and kind of make sure that you're paying attention to upcoming potential changes, opportunities, you know, that are coming your way. I think that there will be a flip side to this where Mm -hmm. funding then goes up significantly and rapidly. And perhaps in 12 to 18 months, we're actually reporting on having the highest levels of venture capital funding in the cannabis space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that brings up, that brings up a great point. Um, You know, the, on the whole, venture capital is not going anywhere. Uh, it's just taking a little vacation. Many of them are on vacation. <laughs> um, <laughs> like this has been validated. Um, but <laughs> you know, uh, some of them do have money, um, especially the larger ones that have mm-hmm. a track record, um, and so they will be able to be the ones who convince the the LPs to kind of be like, "Hey, we're gonna we're in a buy period. We're not buying yet." Um, but when, when we do, we'll be able to see. And, and I think, so that money will flow back in. I, I, I think what people need to watch out for are kind of like the, the, the first time and second time funds, um, that maybe deployed all their capital. Um, we might see them go away. So, you know, just ask them, ask mm-hmm. them what their status is. Do they actually have capital to deploy when it's ready? Um, but then, you know, once you get a yes or no, like be prepared for, for a long conversation because um, they, they, I, I, I kind of, I kind of suspect that most people are going to hold on to a lot of their capital into, until Q1. Yeah. Um, and so that gives you at least uh, the rest of this year to really prove that you have staying power. Um, because I, I, you know, what we've all learned uh, in the venture capital space over the last, you know, two decades or so is that, you know, these downturns are great opportunities for uh, for for companies to prove themselves. And this is when uh, the opportunity for large companies is created or future large companies, I should say, high, high growth companies. And so prove yourself in this period, keep the relationships going, be patient um, and be the one, be the shiniest object when when the capital does start flowing again, because it will it will come back. Um but you, you have to survive to be there. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking for the survivors. So Ben, you know, in, in my mindset, I'm saying, okay, don't be thirsty, take it easy, but make sure you've got the biggest nugs. 
So you got to separate those nugs from the stocks, right? That's right. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. That's yeah. I got you giggling. Get the biggest That's nugs. <laughs> I got you giggling. That's what I was going for on this one. So I think we'll wrap up this segment. Thank you, Ben, for sharing your insight. Um, you know, I this is an area that, like I've said earlier, I know very little about, and I just find it so fascinating where we can find similarities with larger operators and startup companies, and then where the differences really are. And, and while we share some common pain points, we absolutely have very different, you know, kind of like that underlying um, drive. You know what I mean? That mm -hmm. the thing, the thing that, yeah. you know, it, I just find it so fascinating. Um, so thank you for sharing that perspective. Yeah. Um, My pleasure. Great insight. Hope all of our listeners were, were oh. that was some great insight, Ben. We are going to take a quick <laughs> Yeah, quick yeah the listeners are listening. <laughs> I hope they were too. All right, Shay, scratch that. Um, <laughs> as usual, Ben, you've given me and our listeners some helpful insight here. So let's take a quick break to hear from our show's producer, Shay, with some words from one of our sponsors. Take it away, Shay. We're very thankful to have the support of our friends over at Hedgerow Analysis. If your legal marijuana company needs location-specific data-centered projections to help you plan and grow your business, look no further than Hedgerow Analysis. They have all kinds of fancy computer models backed up by smart blocks of relevant data to help you work out things like where the best place to build your dispensary would be. Or maybe you need help citing a distribution network to ensure maximum profitability for a delivery service. Whatever your location-based strategic problems are, it's likely that Hedgerow Analysis can help you solve them. Pop over to hedgerowanalysis.com to learn more about the company's capabilities and to get in touch. That's hedgerowanalysis.com. California Governor Newsom signed the bipartisan bill to eliminate the whopping $161 per pound cultivation tax and actually shift the point of collection and remittance for the remaining 15% excise tax is now going to go from distri uh, distribution to the retail level. So $161, or $161 per pound might seem like a small amount. But some of the numbers that I'm seeing are, you know, $300 pounds um, in California when uh, your cultivation tax is more than half of the per pound price uh, or when you're paying, well, I guess 50% more, I guess you would say it, um, that puts cultivators in a terrible position. Uh, so this bipartisan legislation um, does a couple of things. Got rid of that tax. There's also um, some 
improvement in their ability to enforce unlicensed uh, enforce against unlicensed operators. So there's some pretty steep fines. Um, you know, unlicensed operator, I'm guessing, is not necessarily putting aside a bunch of money in order to pay these fines. So I don't know how much ultimately will, would get collected in enforcement actions. Um, but one of the things that I was really impressed with was the um, fact that social equity operators are going to be eligible for a $10,000 tax credit and they're going to be able to keep 20% of the excise tax revenue uh, that they're collecting from cannabis sales, um, as long as they're reinvesting those funds back into their businesses. Uh, there's also $40 million in tax credits available. Um, half of those are going to go to uh, micro businesses, um, and the other half is going to go to social equity operators. So, I mean, I see this as a net positive for operators in California. But I am not a cultivator in California. Our company manufactures uh, and wholesales in California only. So I don't know. What am I missing here, Ben? Has, has the state gone far enough in this? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I know. Definitely not. Um, but... Uh, you're right. Uh, we should at least celebrate the win um, and identify that this is, you know, this is change. And uh, to see change these days uh, at our various levels of government, uh, I think is always a win. And so, um, yes, thank you, Governor Newsom and Nicole Elliott, the team for, for getting this push through $161 per pound might not have sounded that much um, when yeah we were it was twenty five hundred dollars a pound, right. but like you said, things have dropped below three hundred dollars a pound, um, and so one hundred sixty one dollars. I make mean, that is more than what it costs, or yeah, that is more than what it costs to grow the the, the plant. So, um, created a really untenable um, situation for the growers, um, especially in comparison to the illicit market. Um, that all said, uh, you know, that doesn't change the fact that the price per pound is, is as low as it is, um, what is dramatically different than, you know, less than 10 years ago, I, I think $2,500 a pound was like probably 2015, 2016. Um, so yeah, we're six or seven years later and, and we're down to a 10th of that. Um, I don't know whose idea it was to put a fixed dollar amount to a tax. I, I don't know. I don't know if this exists elsewhere. Uh, maybe gas tax is kind of like that, where it's like, it hasn't changed much since the seventies. Um, tobacco like, tax might be like that because tobacco tax is often a, a multi, multi taxed product as well. So it would be like a dollar a pack um, or, uh, you know, or yeah. more um, plus, plus an additional, um, yeah. Either way, el eliminating it, it's great. Um, but it's just, you know, it does kind of feel like just, it's like, okay, a little bit a, too little, too late, as they say. Um, and that $161, you know, I think, 
you know, as we, we identified previously, the retailers, the ones that are closest to the customer, they, they, they run the game and they're already putting a ton of pressure on, on the distributors and the brands. And it's like, that is going to get absorbed really quickly. I feel, um, especially knowing that this 15% excise tax, you know, still remains. And that, Not to mention local tax too, because California also many municipalities or counties layer on a local tax as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you know the bigger problem in California is that that we still have sixty percent of cities and counties that that still ban all mer- uh, all, all cannabis sales, and um, it's. <laughs> You know, for for a legal state where the majority of the voters like pushed it through to still have that situation here again, it's just even in states where we've legalized, we don't have economies of scale because we can't even access all the consumers and we can't do so efficiently. And so like the the illicit market continues to thrive. And so, you know, thank you for the one hundred and sixty one dollars, but it's just not enough. And and, you know. The, the conversations that happen behind the scenes we know is like because we started at this high tax level now we have to perceptively take things away from people mm-hmm. and people don't uh, like that <laughs> people don't like getting taxes mm-hmm. taken away mm-hmm. uh, if, especially if they're spending them especially if there's mm-hmm. a bunch of like government employees that are used to their like guaranteed like income mm-hmm. you know and no offense to government employees. I'm sorry. You, I, I, you just hold them. It's it's just what uh, you know. It's 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 just it's 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 just very frustrating. Um, Look, this is easier, I think, to tolerate. I think I think this is easier for taxpayers and government employees to tolerate when the government is running in the black. But one of the things that we do know with challenging economic times is often it is our cities, towns, counties that end up struggling. And I worry that there will be some negative repercussions or some negative pushback in the event that cities and towns start to really to really start functioning in the red again. You know, I've mm. been through a couple of recessions. I'm a little bit older than you, Ben. So I've been through a number <laughs> of recessions before. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, that's to me, that's one of the scariest pieces because what I worry about is that there will be some kind of, kind of backlash against the industry as a whole by saying, oh, you promised us that we were going to generate this much tax revenue, that we were, you know, that all these things were going to happen. Uh, when legalization was first brought into play and then peeling back a little bit. Like, I'm curious how much of an impact that cultivation tax eradication, I just like using that word, um, how much, like, it will be interesting to see in dollars how much of an impact that actually has on the revenue that's generated in California. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, look, it's, um, there's probably a big, economic analysis that someone should and could do um, to understand that, hey, if we remove all these barriers and we actually have a thriving legal market, what the tax collection opportunity is in that. If we had retail in all all the counties in in California, not just 40% of them, right? If taxes weren't so high that the legal market could compete with the the illicit market and, and actually recapture some of that what what they estimate like seventy billion dollars cooped up in the illicit market across the United States. So, 
um, you know, maybe a tenth of that, if not more in, in California. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this, yeah, I, I, it's just, it, it's, it's confounding to me that we, we found ourselves, I mean, it's not, we're in California, it's the, you know, whatever whatever you want to say about it it's all true <laughs> like, you know they, they like to overregulate and tax us to high health um but you know it'd be interesting to go the route of i don't know minnesota or something where it's just, <laughs> don't go the route of minnesota we'll talk about that later um but it's um you know if we were able to operate in what was more resem- resembled more of a little bit more of a free market um then maybe we'd actually have interesting numbers to post for for these tax collectors. So one of the things that I was thinking about with respect to this issue is, you know, I because of what I do with licensing, license caps are a topic of conversation often uh, in mm. my world. And I I sometimes want you know, and, and I have historically been very anti license caps. Let the let the market let the market figure it out. However. I do see in a state like California, if there had been some kind of, I mean, it would be a high cap, right? But if there had been, if there was some kind of license cap, at least I think that would breed a little bit of stability for the legal operators that at least they, you could anticipate what your market share could slash should be. And I think with, you know, the opportunity for anyone with, Well, I'd like to say anyone with a little bit of land, but we know Mm -hmm. that illegal operators don't even need their own land in order to to operate. You know, would license caps be helpful in this situation? Um, Or is it truly, you know, getting ourselves to a point where we are actually making a real dent in the illicit market? Yeah, I know. You know, the license caps might help some some people, but you know, I I am in the camp of of as little as possible on on that front. Um, and look, I mean, even liquor stores have limited licenses, so to speak, mm-hmm. but there's a shit ton of them. You know, yep. we we only have like 400 legal dispensaries in 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 California, and we need a lot more to create a, a well-balanced system, I believe. Um, how, how do you think we incentivize municipalities to opt in? What do you think is the best way to do that? You know, if you had asked me like five years ago, I would probably come up with a bunch of hypotheses for you. But like we've largely validated whether or or unvalidated, invalidated like any hypotheses that we've had over the last 10 years because we have enough proof, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it's like trying to tell the federal government, it's like, well, what if we could prove to the federal government that like cannabis could be used as medicine? Maybe it wouldn't be a schedule one drug. They fucking proved it for themselves back in the seventies. So like, I don't know what the answer is there. Um, so it's like the same thing. It's like the world doesn't burn down, you know, people consume less alcohol. There's the youth consumption does not go up. Like what, what do you want us to say? Right. Um, so I, you know, I don't know, <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, and I'm really not even that fired up anymore because I've become so desensitized to it. Like, just like everything else in this world, um, where I'm like, I don't know, it's just, it's just the state that we live in. And, you know, this is what we get to operate in. And frankly, what it's unfortunately for the state of California, what it's turned into for us is just 
we we care a little bit less about focus here in California, you know, mm-hmm. you know, California is now, and this has been an active effort to reduce this percentage as we increase our revenues. But like, you know, California is like 40% of our business now, you know, as a company that's headquartered in California, and we're really proud of that. You know, we want it to be 35% or 30%. And so like, that's what we're going to continue to do because California can't get out of their own way. But again, thank you for the $161. Um, but we got to keep going, but you know, uh, let's open up some more stars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, well, and you know, there's, there's always this fodder or it's like, Oh, it's well one step and we got to do one more step. But it's like, you think, you, you think like the legislators are going to be like, Oh, they want another tax cut. You know, like, it's like, that's, it's not going to happen in the next couple of years. Um, you know, no, you don't get a lot of bites at that apple for sure. No. No, I will no. say, I think that California did just recently um, put into play some some money to help municipalities. Uh, uh, you know, well, it's what I call opt in. But basically, I don't think it was a significant amount of money. Um, and it certainly wasn't so much news that I was like, oh, we have to talk about this. But I mean, yeah, this. So, yeah, I mean, they did. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's government employees making decisions and it's mm-hmm. creating bureaucratic processes and look at the end of the day politicians haven't proven that they can be better stewards of capital than than entrepreneurs so how about just collect less of our money and let us like try to survive that sounds like a great plan to me and i think uh politicians and their cognitive skill sets will be the topic of our next segment. So we'll turn it over to Shay one more time and we'll be back to talk a little bit about what's been going on in Minnesota. Minnesota. A new law took effect in Minnesota on July 1st that allows adults 21 and over to buy edibly or edibles um, infused with hemp-derived cannabinoids, including small amounts of THC. So the bill summary and the language in the bill referenced, and I'm using my finger quotes here, non-intoxicating cannabinoids, but it did not properly define non-intoxicating cannabinoids to include or exclude, depending on the on the way you theoretically think of these um, syn- synthesized products. Um, we're talking about like Delta A, Delta Nine, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. THC. Oh, you know, all the things that when Jayhan comes on, I ask him a bunch of questions. <laughs> 10. Um, in, in effect, Minnesota legislature legalized all forms of THC, including Delta 9, which is a cannabinoid that is known and loved 
for its intoxicating effects. Um, and apparently at least one lawmaker didn't read the fine print. Uh, Republican Jim Ab Abler <laughs> said, or Abler, said that he thought that the bill was only legalizing the less intoxicating versions of THC, Delta-8, uh, and then actually suggested that they like do it over, um, which of course, you know, no one thought that that was a good idea, including Minnesota governor. So I, I dove into this a little bit because I find it so fascinating. So in 2019, Minnesota adopted a version of a hemp bill that is based on the 2018 farm bill. Their intent was to allow the sale of hemp products containing less than 0.3% THC. We're all familiar with this concept, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But apparently what happened in their drafting was that they only applied the 0.3% THC threshold to the plant. So to smokable cannabis, in effect, and not to products like edibles, vapes, and topicals. Um, so those products, even at under that 0.3% THC, THC threshold, were actually still considered illegal, which was definitely not the intent of the Minnesota hemp bill. So fascinating to me is how they then moved forward. So <clears throat> Democrats introduced a standalone bill to fix the loophole, which was actually later incorporated into the 475 page health policy <laughs> and finance bill that was ultimately passed um, with language that would specifically allow any hemp derived THC product that met that 0.3% threshold by weight including edibles, uh, and added a maximum THC per serving of 5%, uh, excuse me, five milligrams, which again, fascinating to me because some states with legal, fully legal cannabis programs put that 5% milligram restriction in place. So interestingly enough, you just make a, a bigger edible or a smaller edible, and you can meet that 0.3% threshold, but ultimately have an intoxicating cannabis plant. And my favorite thing about this was when I was reading the language, it literally looks like they crossed the word non-intoxicating out in one sentence. And that was enough to actually legalize <laughs> edibles. Now they did other things with this regulation. Now, as this started to get publicized, as we got closer and closer to the July 1st deadline, news reports started coming out that um, Democrats purposefully, so Majority Leader Ryan Winkler um, said that, actually said that he and his colleagues were strategic by not publicizing the edible policy change in the new law and instead focused on the fact that there would now be things like age gating and um, you know that five milligram potency limitation uh, and you know gummies wouldn't be in the shape of animals or something that you know something that children would like. Uh, and then Representative Heather Edelson, who was one of the main sponsors of this bill, uh, said 
that they did not put specific rules for licensing, zoning, and other issues related to THC edibles because it could have jeopardized the bipartisan support the measure received in the legislature. So ultimately, by removing the term non-intoxicating from one sentence, edibles with 5%, or excuse me, 5 milligrams of THC, any form of THC, are now legal. Hemp-derived THC. Thank you. Hemp-derived THC. Hemp-derived. I appreciate Which is that. like so confusing. <laughs> yeah. Look, it took me a lot of research very late at night to even like figure out what this was. So admittedly, I've actually got mixed feelings about this. Um, <laughs> I, I have to like almost applaud. It's kind of like when I catch my kid in a lie and it's like a really good lie and he really <laughs> put his all into it. And like, he almost, almost got it, you know, past me, got it, almost got it past me. But in this case, the gems actually got it past. Um, <laughs> I've got to respect that. Like just raise an expectation that nobody would know. And chuckle at their ability to pull it off. I have to. Um, however, I personally am not a huge fan of a loosely regulated, I call it a loosely regulated THC market in general. While I do agree that Delta-8 is less intoxicating than Delta-9, I also believe that Delta-10 is more intoxicating than Delta-9. And I also believe that THCO is psychedelic-like in its effects. My personal preference is that THC products, all of them, were regulated under, in, under a common framework. And whether that means that things, you know, that 0.3% THC, super arbitrary, it, you know, it's just a number I think somebody pulled out of the air. Uh, so I would prefer to see all of these products regulated in a similar manner. Uh, I've said this on the show before and listeners may not like this perspective, but I, it makes me very nervous to know that uneducated, price sensitive consumers that are looking for a THC or a THC like product are going into gas stations and convenience stores and think that they're and, and don't realize that they're getting a product that may not be properly tested, may not be, may not have a, a accurate labeling or accurate potency results. Um, yeah. I'm concerned that that Minnesota law doesn't go far enough in regulating these products. So well, it doesn't even, it doesn't even come close. <laughs> I mean, it's just well, like, it's, now uh, I am like, curious, Ben, do you, um, your CBD products are not, are all like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe that you're doing anything in the TH, uh, in the Delta eight world. Is, am I correct in that? Uh, that's correct. I mean, is that a purposeful decision that you guys made from a, from a hemp drive perspective? Yeah. I yes. mean, like, look, we, um, you know, we try because we have so much exposure, uh, mm -hmm. we have drawn a very and because, as you noted at the top of the show, I, I, I'm pretty outspoken about my morality in the space. Um, and so the operations of our company has to match 
the words that come out of my mouth as the CEO, right? Um, and so, unlike you, <laughs> my opinions really do represent that of, of, oh, of the company. Um, brutal. Because they have to. I mean, it's, it's uh, in, until I'm not CEO anymore and I, you know, go, uh, go on my own political rants, you know, and, and don't worry about the company getting pink. But um, look, I, it's so, so to be clear, um, we, we do have some Delta 8 in the, the regulated markets in which we operate. Um, and they are all in the metric system or whatever those vertically uh, track systems are. Um, and they, they follow all the quality rules. Um, you know, we have been closely watching the proliferation of these intoxicating cannabinoids uh, derived from hemp. And it's just something that we haven't been able to get, gain comfort with, especially with the speed of, of, of various states uh, criminalizing them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Oregon being the most recent one where they said basically anything synthesized um, is not going to be allowed. And I, you know, I can't say that I agree with like the, 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 you know, shock into the face approach like that one, but it's, a, I mean, it's a solution and it's, um, you know, it's like, it takes us back to the, the, the plant, which I, I can't argue with that. You know, I, I think the biggest tragedy with this whole Minnesota thing is hemp and cannabis are the same goddamn plant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I, I just want to say that first. And so as long as we had safe and, and reasonable access created for various parts of the plant, um, and like you said, managed it under one, one regulatory scheme, you know, this would be a much easier conversation. But now we have a situation where I, I think you have something that's been pushed through that didn't have support from the medical cannabis community, mm -hmm. probably didn't have support from much of the hemp community. And like, now you just have this like, like confusion. And, and, and the crazy thing is because of where it lies and because it wasn't clearly stated in the law, this falls under the purview of the Minnesota board of pharmacy. Uh, Who has and, basically said we didn't have anything to do with this? <laughs> <laughs> they like they retroactively had to come out with an FAQ about like what the hell just happened. Like literally just on June thirtieth, they came out with this FAQ. It says like the board does not regulate the state's medical cannabis program, so they don't regulate that. Um, that's under the jurisdiction of the Minnesota Department of Health. Um, but the the yeah the, like the the Minnesota Pharmacy Practice and Wholesale Distribution Act the board has regulatory authority over drug products that are implicitly or explicitly intended for human or animal consumption. So basically, this means everything under this bill. Um, and while the while the regulation of drugs remains under the board's purview, the board of pharmacy pharmacy strongly supports uh, the, the legislation to create an office of cannabis management. So they're basically indicating it's like oh, we need to create something to manage this. Like, we're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like, yeah, they might say that it has to be hemp derived or it has to be, you know, it has to be farm bill compliant, but like no one's regulating it. So people are going to do whatever the hell they want. And that just for me means that we have some pretty serious risk about A, just illicit market products finding their way into the Minnesota system because it's mm -hmm. the path of least resistance. And then just, you know, the consumer safety issues. Like, it's like, what are the quality of these products? Like, you see really shitty brands already, like, no offense, but like, well, whatever, take it offense. Uh, but like, brand, like, like <laughs> brands, like brands popping up where it's just like, it's like, 
oh god what's what's that made with right and that goes through my head but that's because i'm on the inside but like mm-hmm. the consumers of minnesota they're gonna just gonna see these on the shelves like oh that looks cool i'm gonna try that uh, i watched yeah. it happen you know i also think that in that type of environment things like sales to, you know one thing we do as an industry really well is not sell any products to people under age 21 in, you know, in adult use markets, um, time and time again, you know, retailers in the cannabis space have, you know, been 100% compliant. I mean, something that's, that's, you'd never see in alcohol. I mean, come on. Yeah. Right? I mean, think about, yeah. you know, it back in, back in my day, uh, probably back in your day, you know, alcohol still was still very easy to procure. Um, and I worry, you know, when you're, when you're in a, when you're in a convenience store environment or a CBD store environment, um, yeah. kids, you know, I think it is much it's much more like- It's called the Hey Mister. It's just like, hey, mister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here's, here's $10. Can you go buy me $5 product? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I want the grape CBD gummies. Um, but it, it does just very, you know, again, it, it worries me a little bit. And I also think it's interesting. So I wonder if ultimately there'll be some political backlash. So they've only legalized edibles. And I guess maybe like, no, I mean, vapes with less than 0.3% hemp-derived THC would be legal. But- oh. Don't do that. That's that, that well, pointless. <laughs> well, right. I mean, we're, we're used to, you know, our markets are a little bit different. Um, but have they now actually have, have Democrats now harmed themselves in that when they want to take that next step and actually maybe set up a, a legal regulated adult use market that now there's backlash against them saying, look, you got, look at what you guys did to us last time. You know, you, I, yeah, I'm not like the, say tooth, they the toothpaste, <laughs> the toothpaste is out of the tube, right? It's just like, oh, now we have to build up around this. <laughs> and I mean, um, maybe that was the strategy. I'm just, I, I do worry about like, like the backlash from that because I'll tell you, if I was a legislate a legislator on the opposing side of this, and this yeah. happened, and basically, I, I would feel like, oh, they got me. They're not going to get me again. Yeah, you know what? What I would be in favor of at this point. And I don't know, I haven't run this idea by anyone. So uh, let me hear your <laughs> thoughts. But <laughs> um, but like similar to how like uh, retailers can, you know, apply for liquor licenses, um, like go through a process where you can show that you're going to, you're going to manage it properly, that you're, you, you know, the testing protocols, everything that needs to be upheld and, and go through an approval process, even if it's retroactive in this point. And so mm-hmm. it's like, I feel like that's something where it's like, it's not putting the toothpaste back in, but it's like containing it and where wherever it shot out. <laughs> well, and it's at least it's putting a, into place some kind of structure for yeah. enforcing, you know, the most important aspects of this, which are making sure that the product that's on the shelves is tested and properly labeled and only sold to people 21 and over. Yeah, and, and here's and here's why. I mean, I, I'm not a, you know, I, I I'm not. I'm definitely not one for overregulation, but like, there's just so much ambiguity now. And there's this phrase uh, going back to the FAQ that they put out. There's like products that do not meet all the requirements 
of this law um, may also be Schedule One controlled substances, which they're correct because you know cannabis is a Schedule One substance. And so, and and if you're if you break the laws, um, like if you're sourcing uh, hemp from where it's not supposed to be sourced, or if you're using like THC from cannabis, so to speak, um, then by the the laws stated in Minnesota, it's a it's a misdemeanor crime. Mm-hmm. But by virtue of breaking the misdemeanor crime, you also potentially exposed to a federal crime because of the Schedule One, uh, you know, definition. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it just creates it creates so much ambiguity here. And and like you said, like five milligrams. I mean, that's enough for me to have a good evening. Mm-hmm. Um, and fifty milligrams per package, which is more than what the entire country of Canada allows for a uh-huh. single package. Right, I think they have a ten milligram limit right now, and so it's just, I'm like, this is this is legal weed, except it can't be from weed. It has to be from weed's cousin, hemp, same plant, but definitively different. (laughs) And so it's just like, I don't know. It's like I I, I'm trying to, I I think very visually, and I have this visual in my head of like how different states legalize hemp and cannabis and the relative like legalness of of weed across the board and. And I got to say, Minnesota is like the strangest looking visual map in my head right now. And Mm -hmm. I don't know how to uh, how else to contextualize it. Well, in, you know, some states choose not to or some states, well, Canada is a great example. Like in the beginning, when they first went adult use as a country, I don't edibles weren't allowed at all. So it's like, yeah. what what is it about a five milligram edible that's okay <laughs> But yeah. a, you know, but a pre-roll is not, it just doesn't, it just doesn't compute to me, compute to me. I also don't like the, I, I'm personally, selfishly, I just don't like feeling on my heels. And, you know, it wasn't that many episodes ago where I was just like, you know, I like fantasizing about, oh, well, like low dose cannabis beverages will, will be the first ones into like the legal market, you know, we'll be able to go into like a total wine or BevMo and be able to have our low dose infused cannabis beverage section sitting next to the hard ciders and the hard kombuchas and the non alks like that made sense to me. And I'm like, all right, that day will come someday in the, not in the distant future. And then all of a sudden Minnesota was like, Oh, boom, we're going to do it. And I'm like, Oh, uh, shoot. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, all right, ready, fire, aim. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, Hey, look, they're keeping you on your toes. I know, I know. Just another state (laughs) keeping us on our toes, right? Yeah. All right, Ben. So I think that it is time that you and I wrap up this show. We are, our finishing move this week is going to be no finishing move. Um, Because both Ben and I have been, you know, Ben mentioned that he's been fighting COVID. So we're going to give his brain a little bit of a break. He gave us... (laughs) so much today thank you ben it's been a pleasure as always thank to spend you. some time thank with you. you um i'm glad to know that you are on the mend um and i'm looking forward to the next time that we get to sit down and have this conversation again um yeah. gotta thank shay gunther our fearless producer he is a rock star slicing together these recordings into something that makes me sound far better than I should, particularly today. This is going to be a tough one. Uh, 
Of course, we couldn't do this without the generosity of our sponsors. Uh, and we'd love to have you join us as a sponsor. Reach out to Shay uh, and he can walk you through uh, how marijuana can today can um, allow your marketing dollars to go further. Giving some love to Overclock Remix for the tunes. And please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch our show so that other cannabis nerds like us will find out about it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Marijuana Today. Have a safe and healthy marijuana tomorrow. One take, Shay. One take.